Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue our new series entitled, This is Our God with Dr. John Newfeld. Looking at our text from Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 31, we'll study the topic of the altogether glorious God. Most human learning happens by way of analogy and comparison. You know, when we were children, we learned to put the things we absorbed into categories. It's like we had a large file cabinet in our heads, and rather than learning every new piece of information from the ground up, we learned to compare what we had previously learned to what is new. We made a note of how this new bit of information was like what we had already learned. And so new information is filed in drawers under categories in comparison to other things. Let me try to illustrate that. One day as little children, our parents may have taken us aside and read us a picture book on birds. We soon learned that even though some birds are ostriches and some are hummingbirds, we grasped the concept that all birds, even with their vast differences in size and appearance, fit into a general category called the category of birds. We developed a bird file in our brains. Every time we learned of a new bird, we didn't start a new file drawer. We understood the new bird in relationship to all the other birds we'd already learned about. This approach in learning is absolutely essential, for it aids in understanding all that we've encountered. Now, what is this new thing like, we ask? And once we understand, we file it into appropriate categories. Seems obvious, doesn't it? As we continue to learn, the categories become more abundant and more refined and much more insightful. Not only did we categorize the world of things, we soon began to categorize the world of ideas and even human activities and even began to categorize morality. And we learned through these categories to understand the behavior of others, comparison, similarities, relationships between things, all these make up our complex worldview of how we know what we know. We know to a large degree by comparison. Now, when it comes to God, surprisingly enough, we find that he fits into no category at all. Isaiah 40 verse 25 says, To whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Now, it's easy to see that God is not asking us to place the knowledge of him in the appropriate category and, you know, in the right file drawer of our minds. Rather, God is saying that he fits in none of our previously existing or learned categories at all. God is simply unlike all other things. A bit of reflection tells you this must be so. For instance, we know that there are ultimately two categories of all things, and they are the things that are created and therefore temporal, and the things that are eternal or uncreated. The uncreated eternal category has but one thing in it, that's God. And in the other, the second category, are all other things. Indeed, that's exactly what the prophet Isaiah tells us in the next verse, that is in verse 26. He says, lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Now here we learn that God is not only the creator of all other things, and therefore by necessity is unlike them, but that all other things exist because he sustains them. All other things have a relationship of dependency on God. He, however, is not dependent on them. 
Again, this distinction between God and all other things means that he is not only unlike all other things, but by extension, we must therefore conclude that when we think of God as an extension of our imagination or as an extension of what we might encounter in nature, we're fundamentally on the wrong track. For all we're doing then is making or comparing God to what we find or to what we have categorized. And by necessity, whenever we think this way, we're not thinking about God at all. And that's the problem with idolatry. Idols are made to look like something, either human or animal or even a planetary body. Sometimes we might even think of God as an extension of our ideals, of what we think is important. You know, I remember years ago receiving a letter from a young woman who was busy explaining to me that that God was non-judgmental and inclusive of all beliefs and all gender orientations. She said that because that's what's important in our culture, and so she reasoned, how can God be different than the highest ideals in our culture? But whenever we do that, we're not thinking about God at all. We're thinking about ourselves and our culture and our values and our categories. You see, the human heart by nature is an idol factory. Let's add one more thing before we go on. In the last week of this series, when we're going to talk about the Trinity, I'm always amazed at how easily we disregard the rule we just learned. You know, I often hear people say that the Trinity is like an egg or like a three-leaf clover or like H2O, which is a gas, a liquid, and a solid, and suddenly the categories seem never to stop. As As we're going to see, each of these analogies commits a fundamental error. Why can't we be comfortable in saying that when we talk about God, we're immediately launched into the world of mystery, into a being so great that none of our existent categories will do? See, when we talk about the Trinity, I know that all of us are going to scratch our heads and say, I can't quite picture this. And the reason for that is that there are no earthly categories of any being existing as three distinct persons. At some level, we need to say, if we understand God completely within our finite minds, I am very sure that we're not talking about God at all. Well, let's keep reading. Isaiah chapter 40. Verses 6 to 8 says, A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I hope you see how great a difference there is between us and God. I may be flesh, and I may be subject to death and decay. Now, this is key. Not only is God enduring, so is his word. When God speaks, it's fundamentally different than any other word we might hear. When God spoke his word, the universe came into being. In the fullness of time, the word became flesh and lived among us, and God's words have also been captured in a book, the Bible. But the point is that not only is God in a category unlike all others, so is his word, and that's why only God can speak accurately about God. His word about himself is the only authoritative word. Now to verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? You know, in just a little while, we're going to look at a truth that when describing himself to us, God does use metaphors. There's a great deal of difference between a metaphor and the principle we laid out earlier. 
Although God cannot be compared to anything, yet he does use comparisons to describe himself. So what do I mean? A metaphor is a figure of speech in which two things that are unrelated are compared. You know, the difference is between a literal comparison and a figurative one. You know, if I should say, I'm in depression just like Jack, I'm using a literal comparison. I'm saying that my depression can be understood because it fits into the very same category that Jack is experiencing. But that's not a metaphor at all. But let's say I say something different. Let's say I describe my depression by using a metaphor. I might say, I've fallen through a trapdoor of depression. I don't mean that my depression is the same category as a trapdoor. But what I am saying is that my depression is like the experience of someone who suddenly falls without anticipating it, and like the experience of someone who's unable to do anything to prevent himself from falling. That unexpected and helpless feeling is like the one I have in my depression. It's called a metaphor. Now, a metaphor is not a literal comparison, but an allegorical one or a figurative comparison. And God uses a lot of metaphors to help us understand him. Sometimes he'll say that he's like a king and that he's like a wall and like a great rock and like an eagle. But all of these are metaphors and not categories. And in Isaiah 40, verse 12, we are to picture someone who's holding out his hand, palm upwards. And then he cups his hand, allowing for a little valley to form in his hands. And Isaiah says, God is like a man who can put all the earth's oceans and lakes in the hollow of his hand. Now, the picture we're to get here is an overwhelming sense of that which seems so massive to us, so incalculable to us, is but a small matter to God. God can put the earth into his dust scoop. God is like a man who holds out his hand from thumb to pinky, and that's the span of the entire universe. The countless galaxies stretching out further than our minds can comprehend is like a bit of dust someone might put into their dust scoop. God is greater than you had ever imagined. More when we come back. As we begin to study the nature of God, Dr. Neufeld helps us see the vastness of what we're trying to accomplish. For if we're to do it right, we must sense the awesome task of attempting to describe an altogether glorious God. A God who is so far above us that there is in fact no earthly comparison. And then there is the real danger of idolatry, which the prophet Isaiah warns us of. When we come back, stay with us as we explore why so many of us have in our minds a God that is way too small. Have you ever had a burning question about something you've heard on the program? Have you wanted Dr. Neufeld's opinion on a biblical or theological matter? Well, you may have a chance to get the answers in our upcoming Q&A series with Dr. John Neufeld, starting February 29th. For one week, we'll be selecting real questions from our listeners across the country. So send us yours. You can email us at info at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Neufeld. We ended by noticing that God is greater than we had begun to imagine. So let's let Isaiah 40 verses 21 to 26 describe this matter to us. 
Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom will you compare me that I should be like them, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Now, I might say that a fundamental theme of what we have just read is that our God is often too small. We have conceived of him according to existing categories and have assumed that he must be like one of us. The word scarcely found in verse 24 refers to the idea that human greatness, human glory, the the kind of glory that we're all too familiar with, briefly flourishes for a moment in time, scarcely, and then it vanishes. In contrast, God knows the number of all the planetary bodies. He's not only created each one, but named each one, and has understood all the properties of each one completely. Behind this is the idea of power and wisdom, immensity, sovereignty, and authority, the kind of glory that, whatever there is to human glory, simply makes any comparison ludicrous beyond degree. And so what's missing for so many of us is a proper conception of the majesty or the greatness or the glory of God. See, the idea of glory is the idea of magnificence and of the honor that is rightly due a being. Let me suggest that many of us have a starting point when we come to God in which we entertain a view of God that really is too small. We honor what is transitory and ignore what is responsible for that which is transitory. We are overwhelmed with the creation, but do not stand overwhelmed in awe of the one who is worthy of glory. You know, it's amazing how often I've spoken with someone who assumes that God needs us. You know, this idolatrous idea is so pervasive, I hardly know how to begin. Sometimes when you ask an uninformed person why God made human beings, they're going to respond by saying, I think he did it because he was lonely and needed fellowship. You know, behind this notion is the idea that we provide God with something that he needs. I may need him, but he also needs me. And so we elevate ourselves and denigrate God. Or think of this example. I once heard a sermon that was intended to stress the importance of every Christian being involved in ministry. So far, so good. But in order to make the point, the preacher decided to devalue God. He said, God has no hands but our hands to do his will. God has no feet but our feet, no voice but our voice. Here's my response. Nonsense. You did not provide God with hands. He provided you with hands. I want us to consider an incident in one of the missionary journeys of Paul. He's just arrived in Athens, the center of Greek thought and culture. And as Paul goes around the city trying to understand its people and culture, it's hard for him to miss the most prominent feature of that city. In Acts 17, verse 16, it says, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those happened to be there. Now, we might wonder what kind of conversations Paul might have had. 
The marketplace was a place where merchants came together, but it was also an acceptable place to discuss ideas and philosophies and even the gods. And since the Greeks in the marketplace would have had very little understanding of the Old Testament, Paul would have used reason or would have sought some kind of a common shared understanding and on that basis began to talk to them about God. So most of us remember where he began. He's in a place called the Areopagus, a gathering place for philosophers and thinkers and religious leaders. And he says, and I quote, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. You know, as most of us know, this was the place of Paul's beginning, a place where he would begin reasoning with the Athenians. They were aware that there were things about the gods they did not know. And of course, Paul is interested in telling them not about one more god but about the one creator, the one whose splendor is greater than all else, the very thing they don't know. So how does Paul introduce the one God? Listen carefully now to his description. I'm reading Acts 17, verse 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And by the way, I hope you have some dissonance going on in your mind right now. When Christians say we're serving the Lord, we can't mean that we are taking care of God's needs. God has no needs. He's not served by human hands. Nothing that humans provide is needed by God. God is not in the category of the temporal or the needy. He has no needs. Consider Psalm 50, such an interesting psalm, because the issue in question seems to be the purpose of the temple sacrificial system. It would seem that some in Israel would have been deeply influenced by the pagan notions of God held by their neighbors. You know, for many of Israelites' neighbors, they would have thought that the gods demanded sacrifice in order to be fed. And it is this idea that found its way into the popular thinking of Israel. So listen to the response of Psalm 50, verses 8 to 15. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. See, that's a marvelous passage of Scripture. When God says, if I were hungry, he's not suggesting for a moment that God has ever experienced hunger, but if he had, or for that matter, God's not even suggesting that he has ever had a need that had to be satisfied. But if he had, if he did, he certainly wouldn't approach the human race to care for his need. His resources know no end. Ours are limited and finite. What a futile and arrogant thing to even begin to imagine that our relationship with God satisfies a need in God. 
But then the worshiper might ask, well then, why did God command the tabernacle and why this elaborate ritual of sacrificial animals and so forth and so forth and so forth? What indeed is all of that about? And for us, we might ask the same thing. Why does God want a relationship with us? Why does God demand that we should worship him? Why does God want us to repent? Why does God want us to serve him in gladness? On and on it goes. What is that all about? Now, notice how God answers. He answers in three ways. First of all, he says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now, all of this, the sacrificial system, was to teach us to be thankful to God who provides us with all that we need. Second, keep your vows, he says. That is, learn from me what consistent and righteous behavior looks like. And then third, call upon God in the day of trouble. That is, from what we learn from God's gracious provision, believe that he has ability to meet your needs. And when you call to him and he answers you, you will glorify him. That's the point. And that's the whole point of our relationship with God. It's not that God is somehow benefited in our relationship. It's that we are. John, I get it. We're not the hands and the feet and the voice of God, and he doesn't need us. But that sort of puts us in a position of thinking, well, then why does he want us? Why does he love us? Yeah, see, that's such an important question. But unless we ask the question of who God is, we always come to the wrong answers. So that's why thinking about God first and then thinking about how we should serve him comes second. Then things become orderly. When we put it the other way around, everything goes wonky on us. We're going to find out as we continue to talk that, you know, God can love us and not need us. And that's going to be the surprising thing about the love of God. His love is different than our love. And that is, God can call us into service, but the service is for our good and not for his. That's another one of the differences between God and us. Today, we've learned important truths about how and why our God is the most glorious being in the universe. It's true. Our thoughts and ideas about God's glory and majesty often fall so short from what Scripture teaches. Perhaps you've grasped a deeper sense of how much we're dependent and in need of him though he has no need for us in return. So let's allow these words to shape a biblical perspective on the glory of God, and may it lead us to a greater awe, trust, and worship. Don't miss the program tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld continues in week two of this series, This Is Our God. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Back to the Bible Canada, we believe in the power, authority, and sufficiency of God's Word to speak into the lives of all who are open to hearing it. We believe that God has placed us here for a purpose, to bless and encourage as many people as we can with the life-changing truths of Scripture. And we know He is working in their lives as we continue to hear testimonies regularly from our listeners. Here's one comment we received on Facebook. I just wanted to take this opportunity to say a big thank you for the service you are providing. I really enjoy your messages on a daily basis. Be assured also that you are continuing in our prayers. We're deeply encouraged by your feedback, support, and prayers of so many across Canada. If you'd like to be part of our work to reach people with the truth, please consider partnering with us today. To find out ways you can give to the mission, 
please visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. And don't forget to send us your questions for our Q&A series with Dr. Newfeld this coming February 29th.